Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 18. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, the parable of the persistent widow. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 877. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching here this morning. Father God, you tell us that the gospel is your power for the salvation of those who believe. You promise that your word proclaimed will not return empty. And so we ask you, even now, Father, that you would be here by your spirit with the preaching of your word. That it would be faithful and true. And that it would be received, not as the mere words of man, but as it really is, as the very word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how's your prayer life? The great J.C. Ryle once said, there may be no more humbling question. And statistics support him. For most of us, maybe all of us, prayer is a struggle. Survey after survey after survey reveals that, that we struggle with prayer. We do not pray as often as we think we should, nor do we pray as well as we think we should. Prayer is a struggle. It's hard. It's it's difficult. Some of us might even say it's a burden. Well, in this passage before us this morning, Jesus tells a parable. And he tells a parable which is designed to cultivate and support your prayer lives. He tells this parable that you, as his disciple, might be led to pray always and not lose heart. So that's the goal this morning, that we would hear this parable and that we would learn to pray always. But how do we get there? I think there are at least four things we need to see if we are going to arrive at our destination. The first thing we need to see this morning is simply this. We, we need to begin by seeing the importance of prayer. As I said, it's the, it's the goal that Jesus is after. Notice what Luke says. He says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
So Jesus is telling this parable in order to cultivate prayer. He, he is telling this parable to bring forth the fruit of prayer in the lives of his disciples. He told this parable so that they would pray always. But why? Why is Jesus so concerned that his disciples be men and women of prayer? Why does he call us to pray always? What is the importance of prayer? I think we find our answer in verse 8. Notice how Jesus ends this section. He ends with a question asking, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Think about that for a minute. Jesus is calling his disciples to prayer. That's what he's aiming at. That's what he's leading them towards. And yet, when he comes, he will be looking for faith. He's calling them to prayer, but when he comes, he'll be looking for faith. Obviously, there's a connection here. There's a connection between faith and prayer. Jesus sees them as as somehow inseparably bound Together, But how so? What is the connection? I want to suggest to you that prayer is the expression of faith. Prayer is faith in practice. Faith manifests itself in a life of prayer. The person who has faith is a person who prays. One reason we don't see this as clearly as we should is that that we misunderstand the true nature of faith. If I asked you, how would you define faith? What would you say? How would you define it? How would you explain it to your neighbor? I think many of us tend to think of faith as trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and looking to him for life in the age to come. Faith is, is trusting Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. Sounds like a pretty good definition of faith, doesn't it? It's, it's what we would say, I think, if you, if you gave us a quiz. Faith is, is trusting Jesus for these things, for forgiveness and for eternal life. And obviously that's not entirely wrong. Faith entails these things. Faith entails trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It is acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And that forgiveness can only be yours through his shed blood. That is part of faith. More than that, faith also entails trusting Him for eternal life. It it means that you you recognize that that when He forgives you, that when He cleanses you, when He removes your guilt as far as east is from west, He is giving you an inheritance in His coming kingdom. He He is granting to you eternal life, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, of course, trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life in the age to come is part of faith. But it is not the sum total of faith. It is not all the scriptures mean when they call on us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confession defines faith as receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now trusting Jesus for forgiveness and trusting him for eternal life, that's that's part of what it means to rest. But even that's bigger because we're trusting him for more than these things. We're actually trusting him for a full salvation. We're, We're trusting him for sanctification and for these other things as well. But there is that receiving part that we need to recognize. What does it mean to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ? 
Well, receiving is a word that we, we see throughout the New Testament. Paul says, I pass on to you what I also received. And I call to you to hold on to the gospel that you received. To receive Jesus Christ is to receive the apostolic testimony concerning who he is. It is to receive the biblical witness that that he is the eternal son of God come in the flesh. To receive Jesus is to acknowledge that he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, the maker of heaven and earth. To receive him is to to receive the testimony that he is the king who once died to be your savior. See, this is why you can't have Jesus as savior without also having him as your Lord. That was a big debate in the church a generation ago. Well, can we have Jesus as savior without having him as a Lord? And the church universally answered, no, (laughs) no, you cannot divide Christ in that way. The only Lord, the only one you can receive as savior is the one who is Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, and He is only your Savior if you have believed on Him as Lord. And it's important for us to see this, because when we reduce faith to merely trusting Him for the forgiveness of our sins, or or merely trusting Him for life in the age to come, we reduce faith to this one-time act. Well, yes, I believe that. It's like buying an insurance policy. And you, you buy it, and you can put it in the drawer, and you can never think about it again. It is yours. You've, you've bought and paid for it. If you never think about it again, it's still there if you need it. And this is why people can think that they have believed on Jesus Christ for salvation. They, they can think that their future is secure. They, they can think that they have an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God, even though they haven't given the lordship of Christ a second thought since the day of their so-called decision. I want you to hear me say this morning that such one-time decisions are not what the Bible means by faith. Biblical faith is, is more. Biblical faith is coming into a new relationship with the one who is Lord. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is to receive Him as your Lord and your King and your, your Master. It is to acknowledge who He is and recognize that because of who He is, He is your only hope of salvation. Not what your hands have done, but only what He has done for you. Can rescue you from the wrath of God and deliver you into the peace of the age to come. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to acknowledge His absolute sovereign right over you as your Creator. And His absolute sovereign right to your absolute unqualified allegiance. That is what faith is. That's what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To receive Him for who He is. To believe that He is the eternal Son of God and Savior of sinners. When you begin to see this full-orb definition of faith, this this full-orb definition of what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope you can see how that is connected to prayer. Because the reality is, if you regard Christ as Lord of lords and King of kings, then you will pray. Jim talked about the the two wings of, of praise and prayer. I might alter that just slightly. And say that it is the two wings of of praise and petition because they're both prayer. Prayer is both praise and petition. It is both praising God for who He is, acknowledging that He is indeed your Father in heaven. Acknowledging that His Son indeed is is your Savior, your King, come to, to give His life as the ransom for many. 
This is what it means to, to pray to God in praise. And such praise overflows in petition as we come before Him and say, You are the Lord God Almighty. You are my only hope. You are my only refuge. Give me today the strength I need to do today what You call me to do. And give me the knowledge to, to understand it. Give me the wisdom to, to see it. Give me the love to, to cherish it. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit that I might be Your servant. If you acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior, you cannot but pray. It cannot be otherwise. If you do not pray, then you do not have faith. If you do not pray, you have not received and rested upon Jesus Christ, your Lord, for salvation. Praying is like breathing. If you are alive, you are breathing. If you have faith, you are praying. If you aren't breathing, you aren't alive. If you aren't praying, you don't have faith. But before you feel utterly crushed by that, let me add this. You can be alive and be sick. (laughs) You can be alive and, and struggle to breathe. And someone who has faith may struggle with prayer. In fact, I suspect we all do. None of us is as healthy as we should be. We all struggle to one degree or another. But think about that. If we are struggling, if we are not where we should be, then what should we be doing? I'm not saying that if you struggle with prayer, then then you don't have faith. But I'm saying if you struggle with prayer, your faith is not what it should be. And so if you are struggling with prayer, what do you do? Well, of course, there's a place for discipline. There's a place for just knuckling down and saying, well, I'm going to schedule it and I'm going to do it. But how well does that work? You've probably tried that. It's not usually terribly successful. I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus takes a different approach in this parable. If you struggle with prayer, What Jesus wants you to do is to reinforce your faith, to cultivate your faith, to build up your faith. He wants you to see these truths, to to soak in them, to let them fill up your heart, to let them rule in your mind, and to let them bring forth a harvest of faith that will overflow in prayer. If you struggle with prayer, don't focus on praying, focus on your faith. That's exactly what Jesus calls us to do here. He tells us a parable to build up our faith so that we might pray and not lose heart. But why did Jesus think this parable was necessary? That's the second thing I want you to see. I want you to see the temptation to lose faith. Jesus is just assuming it. Again, look at the first verse. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Other translations say, and not faint, or not grow weary, or or not give up. But in the context, it is clear what Jesus is talking about. Jesus tells them this parable so that they might not lose faith and give up praying. But why? Why does Jesus need to warn his disciples against losing faith? Well, again, we find our answer in the larger context. Remember the question that Jesus asks at the end in verse 8. He asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? 
And that reference to the coming of the Son of Man ties this passage to what came before. Remember, this is what Jesus was talking about at the end of chapter 17. He was talking about the day of the the coming of the, the Son of Man. And remember what Jesus taught us about that day. He told us the kingdom is here now in your midst. It is an already reality, but it is not yet here in full. It is here But it's not here like it will be one day. It is is not yet fully consummated. We don't yet fully see it. And in the present, and in the present, we continue to experience the realities of life in this present evil age. We sang it last Sunday. We sang, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. I'm still standing on Jordan's stormy banks. Banks where I am buffeted by the realities of life in a broken world. Yes, I'm looking to Canaan. Yes, I'm bound for the promised land. But I'm not there yet. And think about what that means for our reality. It means that right here, right now, bad things happen. And they happen regularly. Our houses and our cars break down, as some of you have experienced this week. Our bodies break down. We, we get sick, sometimes seriously. Or worse, those we love get sick, and there's nothing we can do to help them. Our relationships break down. Our, our children or our parents go off the rails. We, we lose our job. Bad things happen. And they happen regularly. This is the reality of life in this fallen world. And we all know it. Now as middle class Americans living in the 21st century, we are somewhat insulated from this reality. We are somewhat insulated from the the brokenness of this world. We do not experience trouble in the same way, with the same intensity as, as those in many other parts of the world. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I would encourage you to sign up for emails from Voice of the Martyrs. Recently, they've been sending out a series of of emails on on the various groups throughout the world that are seeking to kill Christians. And you read about the stories of of Christians throughout the world, not here in the United States, but throughout the world, who are persecuted for their faith. And and you recognize the reality of the, the brokenness that others experience. We don't experience it in the same way. We don't experience it with the same intensity. We are insulated, but not completely. We still experience the brokenness. We we still experience the pain. And even here in the United States, it is easy for us to lose heart. It is easy for us to lose faith. When we experience the brokenness, it is easy for us to give up on God, to, to begin to believe that He will never act to put things right. Where are you, God? How could you let this happen to me? Why have you forsaken me? When are you going to hear my my cry for help? I'm sure you know what I am talking about. You've, You've been there. Some of you are there even right this moment. Some of you are there this morning. You are desperate. You wonder where God is. You are in the midst of the brokenness and it hurts. This is the reality of the human condition and Jesus knows it. 
He knows how hard it is. He knows how how painful it can be. And it's why he tells this parable. It's why he tells a parable to his disciples that they will not lose heart because he knows that the temptations to lose heart will surround them. But how does this parable help? How does this this parable teach us not to lose heart? That's That's the third thing I want you to see this morning. The reason not to lose faith. Look with me again. At the parable. First, we have the unrighteous judge. Verse 2, Jesus says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a, a kid, I used to hear that description and think that this guy must be the worst guy in all of human history. You know, when I, when I heard that description, I used to think, this is like Hitler, or this is like, like Stalin, this is the, the worst of the worst. I don't think that's actually what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying that this is the worst guy in the world. Rather, I think he's saying that this is a guy like a lot of guys you know, maybe even somewhat like you. His life isn't shaped by the fear of God. He isn't controlled by a concern for his neighbor's good. On the contrary, he is principally and primarily concerned for himself. He looks out for number one. He only ever does what is in his own interest, and he won't hesitate to serve those interests, even if it means crossing the interests of someone else. When Jesus describes it as not fearing God and not fearing man, we, we, we recognize that there's something not right, but, but I would suggest to you that this is actually taught as a virtue in our day. We actually train people to think this way. You need to look out for number one. You need to do what's in your heart. You need to do your own thing. That's exactly what this guy does. But notice what it leads to. It leads to the fact that he is totally unconcerned for the case of this widow. First of all, she offers him no benefit. She's a widow. By very definition in that culture, it means that she is without power or without influence. There is nothing that she can do for him. She offers him no advantage. And so he won't be troubled to hear her case. And not only does she not offer him any advantage, but helping her might actually cost him favors from someone else because the person who is oppressing her clearly has more power and influence than she does. If he's, if he's got enough power and influence to oppress this widow, then he might have enough power and influence to, to help the judge in some way. And so the judge isn't going to risk his favor to help someone who offers him no benefit of all. And of course, next we have the widow herself. We aren't told much about her situation. All we know is that she is a widow. She is a widow and she is being unjustly oppressed. Someone is wronging her and she is asking the judge to make it stop. She is asking the judge to give her justice. She is is looking for relief from this unjust persecution. And because the judge refuses to do the right thing, she goes to him again and again and again because she has no other recourse. But notice what we're told in verse 4. For a while he refused. For a while he just pushed her off. But then afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. After a while, his rank selfishness moved him to work for the widow. He finally said, listen, it's just not worth it. 
You know, I'm having to see this lady every day. She keeps bothering me. She's beating me down. The, 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 the language literally means she's giving me a black eye. She's, she, is, she is bothering me. She's beating me down. Finally, I will give her justice just to get rid of her. Not the most noble of judges. And we must be wondering, what in the world are we supposed to learn from such a man? What is the application? Well, first, let me say what Jesus isn't saying. Let me say what this parable doesn't mean. Jesus isn't telling us to be annoying in prayer. Jesus isn't telling us that if we bother God enough, eventually we will get what we want. That's what the prophets of Baal thought in Elijah's day. You remember the story on Mount Carmel? I thought if we make enough noise, if we cause enough disturbance, eventually, eventually Baal will hear us and eventually Baal will will give us what we want. And Elijah simply mocked them. That is not what this parable means. It's sometimes taught that way. Sometimes people say, you just got to keep going to God and bugging Him with your prayers and eventually He'll give you what you want. But think about what that teaches you about God. It suggests that God is somehow an unjust judge, that He is somehow reluctant to, to pour out blessings on His children. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not telling us that God is an unjust judge. He's not telling us that God is unconcerned for our good and must be cajoled into acting for our benefit. Rather, Jesus is drawing a contrast. And if you miss the contrast, you will miss the point. What Jesus is saying is if even an unjust judge who has no concern for anybody but himself, if even an unjust judge will eventually give justice to a widow, how much more will God, your heavenly Father, who loves you and and cares for you, how much more will He give justice the same thing Jesus does elsewhere in the Gospels when he says, if even you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father pour out true blessings? That's Jesus' point. He's not saying God's an unjust judge and you must manipulate him into helping you. No, he's saying God is ready to help. He is eager to do so. Look with me at verse 6. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice. And notice, he will give it to them speedily. Not only will God give justice to his people, but he will do so speedily. He will not delay long over them. That's the application. Jesus doesn't leave us to guess. He he states it explicitly. This is what we are to see. Our Heavenly Father will give us justice, and He will do so speedily. But what does that mean? What does it mean for God to give justice to His people Speedily. If you, if you think about it, it sounds like Jesus is saying that, that God will put things right for his people and he will do so right now, right here, right away. That's what it sounds like, but there's a problem with that. The problem is it doesn't seem to be true. The problem is it doesn't accord with our experience. It's not what we see when we look out the window. It's, it's not what we read when we look at the newspaper. In fact, it's been some 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words. And from our perspective, he still hasn't put things right. From our perspective, he still hasn't given us justice. 
So what in the world does Jesus mean when he says that God will give his people justice and he will do so speedily? What are we to do with such a statement? Well, some have responded by reinterpreting the word speedily. They say, well, maybe we've misunderstood what Jesus is is saying. And and there are basically two ways to to re-understand that word. The first is to reinterpret it to mean not quickly, but rather, or not soon, but rather quickly. Uh, that, that it's not that it's going to happen soon, but that when it does happen, it will happen in a hurry. In other words, when, when God acts to bring justice to his people, it will happen in the blink of an eye. There will just be a sudden transformation, but, but that transformation may be a long way off. And if we just had the word speedily, that would be possible. That's one way that that word can be translated. However, there's a problem because it doesn't fit with what else Jesus says here. Jesus says that he will not delay long over them. And that phrase is not so easily reinterpreted. The clear answer that Jesus expects is no, he will not. He will not delay over them. So so reinterpreting speedily as, as quickly just doesn't work. The second way to reinterpret speedily is to say that, that God's sense of time is simply not our sense of time. That with him a thousand, day, a thousand years are as a day and a day is as a thousand years. And so therefore when God says speedily, it has no bearing on our experience of speedily. Peter seems to do something like this in his second letter when he says God is not slow to Fulfill his promises as some people count slowness. God's understanding of time, God's experience of time is is different than ours. And that's more tenable. That, that, That makes more sense, but I still don't think it's right. In fact, listen to what I think. If you reinterpret speedily, you will actually completely miss the point of the parable. Not only will you miss the point, but you will actually undermine the point. Because what Jesus wants you to hear this morning is that your heavenly Father will give you justice and He will do so speedily in exactly the way you hear those words. Right here, right now, in this life, He will give you justice. But how can that possibly be true? (laughs) What we need to reinterpret is not speedily, but our understanding of justice. What does it mean for God to give justice to his elect? What does it mean for God to give justice to his people? We, we tend to think in, in sort of final terms, the, in God putting all things right all of a sudden at the end. And of course, God will one day put all things right. One day, God will dry every tear. One day, God will right every wrong. One day, God will turn this world right side up. That day is coming, but I don't think it's what Jesus is talking about here. Notice the justice that he's talking about in this parable. In this parable, we have a widow who is asking for justice against her adversary, against the one who is oppressing her, against the one who is seeking her wrong. She is being unjustly persecuted, and she is crying out to the judge to to give her justice, to protect her well-being against the attacks of her adversary. That is the justice that Jesus is talking about. That is the justice that that Jesus is promising. You've heard me say it before, but hear it again. If you are a child of God, if you are His this morning, if you have received and rested upon Jesus Christ for your salvation, 
then your enemies, whether they be flesh and blood or whether they be spiritual powers, they cannot harm you. They cannot destroy your well-being. They cannot undermine your good. God has promised to work all things together for the good of those who love Him. And nothing in all creation can thwart His almighty purpose. Not just in the future, not just one day it will work out, but right here, right now, your enemies cannot harm you. Hard for us to believe. Because we still suffer. Because bad things still happen. Because things out of accord with our idea of justice, out of accord with our idea of of right, still swirl around us. It's hard for us to believe that, that no one can harm us in this present evil age. But it's what Jesus is promising. Yes, your enemies may cause you to suffer. In fact, Jesus promises more than that. Jesus actually says your enemies will cause you to suffer. They will. You will suffer in this present evil age. Things will go wrong. Relationships will break. Cars will break down. People you love will get sick. You will hurt. You will suffer in this present evil age. But here is your hope that nothing that happens to you in this life whether by attack of the devil or attack of your neighbor, nothing that happens to you in this life can truly harm you. I cannot promise you that that thing that you fear will not come to pass. I cannot say that to you this this morning. It might. It might come to pass. I can't promise you that because Jesus didn't promise you that. But here is what I can promise you. That nothing that you face can undermine God's purpose to work for your good. He will give you justice and He will do it speedily. He will do it even today. Let that promise fill your mind. Let that promise rule in your heart. Jesus told this parable so that you would see it, so that you would believe it, so that you would stand firm in the faith. And that that faith would overflow in prayer of praise and thanksgiving. And Jesus knows how hard it is. That's why he asked the question at the end. He says, nevertheless, think about what that word means. He says, nevertheless, even though this is true, will the Son of Man find faith on earth when he comes? Now there are some who think that means that the church is going to dwindle to almost nothing before Jesus returns. And I guess that's possible, but there are other texts that certainly seem to suggest that the church is going to grow and grow like a stone cut without hands that will one day fill the earth. So, so which it is, I'm not quite sure. But, but either way, it's not the point Jesus is making here. Rather, Jesus is acknowledging the difficulty of faith. He's acknowledging how hard it is. He says, I know this isn't going to be easy. You're going to have to cling to this promise. He's acknowledging how hard it is for us to to hold on to faith when when bad, even evil things happen. So how do we? How do we hold on to it? Well, think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul makes almost exactly the same promise that Jesus is making here. That that promise that God will work all things together for the good of those who love Him. And we all know that promise. We, We cling to that promise. But do you know the foundation upon which that promise stands? 
You see, our hope is not pie in the sky. It is not some ungrounded Pollyanna optimism. Our hope is grounded in bedrock. It is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know that that God is for us? How do we know He will work for our good? Because He did not spare His own Son, but put Him forward as a sacrifice for our sins, that we who were deserving only of wrath might instead know blessing. Do you want to know if God is for you? Do you want to know if God loves you? Do not look to your circumstances. They will lie to you. Look to the cross. Set your eyes upon Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith. Because in Him you see beyond reasonable doubt that God is for you. And that He is indeed working for your good. Hear that. Receive that. Rest in that. And allow that faith to fill your heart with prayers of praise and petition. That you might not lose heart but that you might stand firm in the hope of the gospel even to the end. Because Paul says, if you will consciously cast your concerns upon Him, if you will bring all that burdens you to Him in prayer, then His peace, and remember, His peace that surpasses understanding, not a a peace that makes sense in the context, but a peace that surpasses understanding will be yours. Because your peace will be grounded not in the circumstances of your daily life, but in the reality of the God who is for you. And because He is for you, and because He offers you His peace, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank You for this Gospel. We thank You for this parable. Give us faith to believe it, Father. Open our eyes to see You. Not as an unjust judge who must be cajoled into helping us, but as a Father in Heaven who delights to give good gifts to His children. Father, help us to believe that You will give justice to Your people and You will do so speedily. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.